like to have you turn to John chapter 14 this morning. John chapter 14. So good to have you with us. I also want to welcome those who are watching online, whether on Facebook or Vimeo. Uh, good to have you with us. For the last few weeks, in the month of January, we've been focusing our attention on, a, on prophecy updates entering into the year 2019. A lot has been happening in the world today. A lot of things are happening practically every day, sometimes every hour, that has some significance to the times in which we're living, to the direction that the world <clears throat> and this country is going. Uh, I spoke last week on the issue of globalization and uh, turning into a, a one world government, one world system, one world order, one world religion. Uh, these things, of course, you can uh, watch on our uh, website or uh, archive on, on Facebook. But uh, the, the point is that we need to be, as a, as, as a people who belong, no longer to this world, but to our God and our Savior Jesus Christ. We, we, we need to be aware of what is taking place. And before we get into the, uh, the message this morning, which I've entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? I want to ask a question. The question is, are we seeing a level of God's judgments being poured out specifically and to a certain degree upon particular people in the limelight today? Are we seeing some judgments being applied by God? I, I think that we would want to see more, but the fact is that we are. While I know that God's judgments are never meted out haphazardly or randomly or even aimlessly, it is interesting to see them occur quite publicly. Case in point, uh, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. How many of you heard of Ralph Northam, the, the government, governor of Virginia? Raise your hand. I want to see. Okay. Oh, that's a lot of you. Okay. Some of you need to wake up. All right. Well, here's the reason why. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, who just last week made comments in support of the bill that allows late-term abortions up until the moment of birth. That is a bill that was in the Virginia uh, legislature. Allowing late-term abortions up until the moment of birth. I mean, that's, you're talking about late. Stating even that after an infant would be born, presupposing any birth defects or other problems, a conversation, as he put it, would take place between the mother and her doctors while keeping the child, and I quote, comfortable, could result with the termination of that baby's life, which at this point went from abortion to infanticide, the killing of a human being. Then came this revelation. A 1984 yearbook photo from Eastern Virginia Medical School, which by the way says that he was a physician, or is, showing two people, one in blackface, the other wearing a KKK hood and robe. This on Northam's personal yearbook page. And while he issued a multiple 
Well, he issued multiple apologies. He never specified which costume he was underneath. In fact, it went from apologizing for that picture to the fact that he denies that he was in the picture itself, as he did yesterday. But he faces his own Democratic, Democrat Party's call to resign. And if he doesn't, to face impeachment in his own state. The question is, could this be considered God's judgment? You decide. But just think, what is more horrendous? And what brought him to that point? But that he so casually, in that interview, said, well, you know, a child could be born, and eventually it could be determined while he's kept, he or she is kept comfortable whether they will terminate that life. That's the world in which we live, folks. And where are all the cries about that statement instead of all the cries to step down and resign because of a picture in your yearbook? Wow. So this is just another example of the insanity that is taking place in our world as we await the soon return of Jesus Christ. I don't know where everybody in this room stands on the return of Jesus Christ because there might be some of you who may not think that he's coming again, but I'm telling you he's coming again. And if you don't think he's coming again, sadly you're not alone. And I'm not referring to unbelievers who don't believe in Jesus at all because there are people who consider themselves Christians who have no clue whatsoever as to the prophetic landscape of the last days, which by the way, Jesus taught his disciples about emphatically. And not just little lessons about it. He said, this is what's going to happen in the last days. This is what's going to happen before the return of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ to set up his kingdom on this earth for a thousand years. And there's no person on this earth Even people like Rick Warren who wrote The Purpose Driven Life who in that very same book said, listen, Jesus in effect was saying to his disciples, what happens in the future is none of your business. We've quoted it already. That's been done this past week. As a matter of fact, I did it and, and Greg Reed did it when he was here. Jesus very much wants us to know the future. Because he gave it to us. That's called prophecy. And as I've said often, one of the key characteristics of the last days would be deception. But Jesus deceived no one. He deceived no one, especially his followers. And he could not deceive anyone because he is God in the flesh. And he is truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. So in John 14, our text today, in verses 1 through 3, this is what Jesus said to his disciples before he goes to the cross to die in their place, in our place, on our behalf, on their behalf, because of our sins. Not his, because he had none. But Jesus said and begins with the comfort. He begins with comfort to his disciples when he said, let not your heart be troubled. 
You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Does that sound like a promise? I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And let's not forget that this statement was made after Jesus identified his betrayer and sent Judas Iscariot away to do his bidding, which would be done a short hour or two later. There was comfort in his declaration to the eleven. Let not your heart be troubled. This very comfort would be expressed to the church in Thessalonica in Paul's first letter to this young congregation of believers to whom the apostle taught an intense course in prophecy that could be fulfilled at any moment. As young as they were, he taught them about what was yet to come. Listen to the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. He said, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. Stop and think about that statement today. None of us would want to have you ignorant of the things that are in the scriptures concerning the days and times in which we're living. Paul is in fact stating, listen, we're looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. And he speaks of, of those family members and friends that were believers in Jesus Christ who had died. And, and they worried whether they would ever uh, be raised again to, to be with Christ when Christ would come. He says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. What he's saying to them is you have hope. Because they have the blessed hope in Jesus Christ. And then he said, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, which means they were dead in Christ, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Now, I'm going to tell you that that phrase there is telling us that this is prophecy. I say unto you by the word of the Lord. Very similar, in fact, to what we hear throughout all of what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, where prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. He says, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep, which means, the word prevent there means actually to precede. We which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. And then he clarifies and says, for the Lord himself. By the way, think about that statement, for the Lord himself. It tells us something about this coming for the church. It says the Lord himself comes. He doesn't come with all of his hosts of heaven, and he doesn't come with ten thousands of his saints, because he's coming for his saints. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain 
I'm looking around at 9.40 in the morning and I see most of you alive. If not all of you. Check your pulse. We're alive. And we're waiting. They were alive and they were waiting. He says, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. Harpazo in the, in the Greek. Harpazo. Snatched away together with them in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air. There, there were some people who go, ooh. <laughs> Say whatever you want. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am there, you will be also. How comparable are these statements Jesus made and Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, where Jesus began with comfort because of his disciples being in a state of Paul says to this church, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now let me say that these two passages cannot be denied. I just read them to you. They were very clear in what they said. They cannot be made to disappear by those who radically and vehemently deny what is called the rapture of the church, which is what is described in both John 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture of the church. We've probably heard that statement, and if you haven't, you're going to hear about it today. Because today's Super Sunday. And it's not Super Sunday because of some football game. It's Super Sunday because we're talking about the coming of Jesus for his church. And we just read about it, and we need to believe it. But there are many who don't believe it, as we teach it right out of the scriptures. And most of them would say that this is a doctrine of the church, but the rapture of the church is not so much a doctrine of the church as it is a prophecy concerning the church. Now, what's the difference? Doctrines are established about certain teachings that are, that are in the scriptures that do not change. Prophecy is a statement made of something that is yet to come. In other words, it hasn't happened yet. But man has made all kinds of doctrines over the issue of the rapture of the church, of, the, of Jesus coming. Some don't believe it. Others believe that it is, but it's all uh, then concerning the timing of the rapture. There are those who are called pre-tribulationists. That's what we believe. We, we, we are pre-tribulation uh, uh, Pre-tribulationists who believe that Jesus will come for his church before the seven-year period. By the way, we're teaching about that seven-year period in, 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 uh, on Wednesday nights in the book of Joel because this theme is the day of the Lord. The day is uh, a period of seven years. All of darkness, all of gloom, nothing good about it other than the fact that it's going to bring deliverance to the people of Israel. And so it is a prophecy. It's yet to come. That is how Jesus said, I will come again. That is what Paul said. The Lord shall descend from heaven. Has it happened yet? No. That really puts a, 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 
wrench in the works of those who call themselves preterists, who say that all of the, all the prophecies of the Bible have already been fulfilled. Really? If that's the case, then we should be in heaven by now. So these statements can, can and are often misinterpreted because it doesn't fit into a certain timeline. Again, we're pre-tribulationists here. That's what we believe the scriptures teach. Then there are those who say it's really a mid-tribulation rapture. That you have to, the church will go through three and a half years of, 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 uh, of the, of the seven-year tribulation. But in the middle of it, the Lord's going to you know, then take out the church. Then there are those who are pre-wrath rapture people who, who have, they call it the three-quarters rapture. Kind of like the football game, you know, in the third quarter, we get raptured. You know, not in the first quarter or before the half, but in the third quarter, we get raptured, you know, using football lingo. And then there's the pre, or I should say the post-tribulations, which says, you know, we're, uh, you know re- Jesus won't come for his church until after. In other words, we're going to go through all of the tribulation, but at the very end, he's going to take us out and then he's going to bring us right back. Kind of bungee, bungee cord uh, theology, except the opposite way. You know, you know, we come right back down. <sighs> okay, so those those are the timelines. You know that that uh, people have created into some kind of doctrine of the rapture of the church. No, it's 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 a prophecy. And Jesus made it, and Paul makes it. And what do we know about prophecies? Prophecies are things that will be fulfilled. Jesus promised. Paul states it. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is in Scripture. But it's often, you know, misinterpreted, as I said, and when the rapture is to occur, matters greatly in light of the condition of the world in this present time. The timing of the rapture does matter greatly Dealing with the conditions of the world. So it is an event that to some is outrageous. It is outlandish. It is out of the norm. That's why I said, ooh, you know, people going, oh, you know, we're going to be caught up and disappear just, uh, you know, in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. By the way, that's in the scriptures. I'll talk about that later. It is, uh, to them, this event is an unnatural event. It's completely unbelievable. But, but to those who fully trust in the word of God, and I hope that most of you, if not all of you, trust in the word of God, understand this. Remember what it says in Mark chapter 10, verse 27, when Jesus was talking actually about um, uh, the, uh, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. He says right after that in verse 27 of Mark 10, he says, Jesus looking upon them saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Now, do you believe that? That we have to believe that because Jesus said it. And he's the truth. And all he speaks is truth. There was even a a statement made by an angel to Mary in Luke chapter 1 verse 37. When he comes to let her know that God is going to come upon her and and, and fill her with, with, uh, uh, with Jesus to bring into this world. And he has to say to her, for with God nothing shall be impossible. With God, nothing shall be impossible. In Luke 18, verse 27, again, the, the, the same passage like Mark, but I'll, I'll just state it again. He said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. If it's impossible to our way of thinking, to our finite way of thinking, it's still possible with God. 
By the way, as believers in Jesus Christ, if we truly trust the word of God, we truly trust that the world was created in six 24-hour days as God said it was. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if we believe that, we can believe that he can come and snatch us away in the moment and in the twinkling of an eye. There's all kinds of things in the scriptures that are weird to the finite mind. The healings that we see. A number of things that are happening. The sun stopping in its tracks. All kinds of things. But with God, nothing's impossible. Now, getting back to our text, it's, it's been said that the, uh, the end is near. I'm, I'm sorry, the end isn't near, it's here. I believe that. The end isn't near, it's here. We're already seeing the signs of, of the times, and we need to understand those signs. And one reason that we know this, that we know that the time is here, and know that the rapture of the church has to happen before the seven years of tribulation, is simply because the angry opposition to an attacks on the pre-tribulation rapture themselves are an authentication and a validation for this prophecy. And I'll just say it outright, the devil doesn't want us to know what God is doing. The devil doesn't want us to know God's plan for the church, and he doesn't really want us to know what his plan is. But God wants us to know. That's why his word is so clear the way it is. One of the weakest arguments against the rapture of the church today by, by its detractors is that the word rapture is not found in the Bible. The word rapture in English. No, it's not found there. It's not found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But in the Greek, the word is harpazo. And the word harpazo means to snatch away, to snatch away violently. Now, rapture comes from actually the Latin. And the Latin translation of the Bible has a word that is, that, that is the root word for the understanding of what rapture is today. So that's where we get the word rapture of the church. A little easier to say than the you know, we're, we're, we believe in the snatching away of the church. Well, that's what we believe. But it's nice to hear the word rapture because, oh, it's rapturous. You know, and it is. I mean, just, you know, Jesus taking his, his church home before the great day of the Lord. Yeah, the, the, word, uh, the English word rapture is not found in the Bible. But may I tell you something? Did you know that the word Bible is not in the Bible? It may be on the cover of your Bible, letting you know that it is the Bible. But the word Bible is not in the Bible. Neither is the word Trinity, but we believe in one God and three persons because that's what the Bible teaches. So that argument is really just flawed. The event is definitely found. Look again at 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. You know, this is not Paul, you know, speaking hyperbolically, you know, and, and just kind of, you know, to try to encourage, you know, and, and just give kind of weird pictures, uh, you know, to say, listen, this is what's going to happen, kind of sort out, but if it does, it will not. No, no, no. He says the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout. Now, some people de deny the fact that, you know, there's going to be some kind of quote-unquote secret rapture. They call it the secret rapture thing. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of all of that. Because when he comes, first of all, he doesn't come to the earth. 
He comes in the clouds. And notice it says, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise. He's very, very specific of who's going to hear this shout, and who's going to hear the trumpet, and who's going to respond to it. The dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, in the clouds to meet the Lord there in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The event has certain specifics that, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 that I want to share with you. Verse, verse 51, that says, Behold, I show, I show you a mystery. Yeah, this is a mystery, but there, there are so many allusions to the rapture of the church in the Old Testament. An allusion is with an A, not an I. An A means it is, it is, an, it is something that can be referred to without referring to it directly. And so the allusions are in the Old Testament, but I'll talk about one at the very end. But behold, he says, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, we shall not all die. Sleep is, is, is a word that is used for, for death. Because of, in, the, in the believer, we die in the, physically, but we are very much alive spiritually. Amen? So we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That change, that word there, I believe it's the word in the Greek, aleso, but it, it, it means we are changed completely to something different. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Now we all blink, I hope, because we're trying to lubricate our eyes, you know, when we're, we're alive and walking and breathing and alive and, uh, you know, awake. You know, but we never are conscious of the fact that the twinkling or the blinking of an eye is like that. It is so fast. It just comes and goes, right? And we're not conscious of it because, you know, because it's just one of those things that just happens. But in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trump, and there's that trump again, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. And I could just see Paul said, this corruptible, this body of flesh, which is wearing out in the second law of thermodynamics on this earth right now. We are wearing out. This corruption shall put on incorruption. And this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, O death. Where is thy sting, O grave? Where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast. In this world right now, before the coming of Jesus Christ for his church, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And what Paul is saying in that statement is, listen, he's, he can come at any moment. The rapture of the church is imminent. It could happen without anything else happening. So be ready and abound in the work of the Lord. There are four very essential elements to consider in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Four essential elements. I'll go by them very quickly. We've already referenced, to, uh, referenced them twice. The first essential element is that dead believers will resurrect. 
Dead believers will resurrect. If we know someone who has gone on in this life and they, you know, they, they've passed away, and, and, uh, but they're believers in Jesus Christ, on that day when Jesus comes, they will rise again. Dead believers will resurrect. The second essential element is that living believers will be translated. In other words, they will be changed and snatched up violently. Changed completely. Into an incorruptible and immortal type of body that can actually be in the presence of God and eventually in, in, in heaven forever. These bodies cannot. Because they are corruptible. Thirdly, all will meet the Lord in the air. This is the third essential element. All will meet the Lord, both dead and alive. All will meet the Lord in the air and will always be with him. This is not some little meeting that we're going to have with Jesus. Oh, we're going to have a conference with Jesus. And we get up there and we're, you know, oh, you know worshiping the Lord. And, all. and then he says, okay, I've got to go back to the, to the right hand of the throne of God. And, and you guys got to go back to, to, to earth. No. Once we get caught up, we're going to be with him forever. Well, that's encouraging, isn't it? I like that. And the fourth essential element is that we are to encourage one another with these words. These words encourage us as believers in Jesus Christ. We may be going through all kinds of things, or maybe, you know, God is blessing us, but still, every day, some, some of us have one kind of struggle or another in life. Sometimes those struggles may be physical, other times, other times they're financial, or whatever it might be, whatever it is. Sometimes we are getting persecuted because we are believers in Jesus Christ, and people just don't like that. The fact of the matter is, most of us should understand there is a, a, a sense of persecution at all times because we're Christians. But these words encourage us. Have you ever wondered why we are to encourage the, with these words? Well, simply because death is a reality. And I need to be encouraged. Because I, I, I've just lost in the last few months uh, two cousins uh, who were very close to me, one in California. Well, but actually both in California, just different parts of California. But one from my mother's side, one from my father's side. Both of them near my age. Actually, both of them were younger than me. And in just the last three or four months... They've passed away. Death is a reality. And we need to be encouraged. And Jesus encourages us. And Paul encourages us. And by the way, this encouragement, comfort one another with these words, makes sense only in the pre-tribulation view. It only makes sense in the pre-tribulation view. See, what if, what if post-tribulationism were true? Post-tribulation, the very last one, you know, where, where you, you, know, you, you have to go through the whole tribulation, then you, you're raptured, and then you come right back with Jesus. I mean, it's like, you know, up and down, just, there it is. What if post-tribulation were true, that, that we're raptured at the end of the tribulation period? Then this is what you would be hearing. You will go through seven years of tribulation. And by the way, the day of the Lord, those seven years... It's a day of darkness, not of light. It's a day of gloom and not of joy. From the beginning to the end, those that are on the earth will go through that sort of experience. You'll suffer through Satan's furious wrath because the Bible teaches us that Satan will pour out his furious wrath 
upon the saints, the saints being, of course, those who have come to the Lord during that time of seven years of tribulation, also referring to the Jewish people. Let's not forget that. Then you will experience the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. Those are described for us in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Those three judgments, you will have to experience them. You'll be around when they go through it. And they're not an easy thing. But they, but they are progressively worse and increasingly painful. You will go through that if you're on the earth during that time. Many of you will die painful deaths as martyrs. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Anybody comforted after I gave you that list? I wasn't comforted. May sound ridiculous, but it isn't. What is, it, what is different about this compared to what Jesus said? In John 16, 33, when he said, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. But then he said, In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. What is the difference? Please understand that those are the trials and tribulations that the church has to endure and had to endure since its inception. The church has been told, you will suffer persecution for being believers. To the critics who say that the pre-tribulation rapture is, is escapism. Oh, you're just trying to escape. Well, okay. Yeah, let, let's add that, that, with, that we've also been told that we are to endure man's wrath. We're to endure man's wrath. 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 13, Paul tells his son in the faith, Timothy, who was a pastor of a church, he says to him, but thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, notice this, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. In fact, in one of those places, they, they pretty much stoned him to death. But notice that he says, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Persecutions, listen, different. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's man's wrath. We're going to face it. We have already faced it. And we will face it until the day of Jesus. What about Satan's wrath? Paul tells the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The schemes, the methods, because the word is methodeia in the Greek, the methods of the devil, the schemes of the devil. You, gotta, you, you need to have the whole armor of God to stand against those things. That's his wrath against you today. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So there's man's wrath, there's Satan's wrath that we're dealing with today, and then there's the world's wrath. 
that he describes to his disciples in John 15 verses 18 through 20. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. I have to, I have to say this. But there, there are, there are quote-unquote Christian artists out there today in, in, in the world. They start out as Christian artists. And then they're, they're posed with the question, well, do you believe in such and such? Or do you believe in this? Or do you believe in that? Do you believe that homosexuality is a sin? And, and because they don't want to get, you know, uh, into, a, into some kind of a, 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 a compromising position. Well, you know, they kind of, they don't just go out and say what the Word of God says. Because most of the time they don't even know what the Word of God says. But because they do not commit to it, they get invited to the worldly programs and, and they say, oh, we, we, we just, you know, they, they get puffed up. Folks, if you're going to serve the Lord, you got to serve the Lord in truth. In truth. He says, I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But when the world starts loving you, there's a problem. I have a problem with Christian books that, that uh, get, uh, you know, that uh, are become million sellers on the New York Times bestseller list. The world's buying the book. If there's nothing in there that says, listen, you need to come to Jesus Christ, then they're going to love you. And Jesus said, the world will hate you because of me. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Come to think of it, there is Christian escapism. Believers are not going to hell. Are you glad that you're going to escape that? And what's wrong with that anyway? Oh, you Christians are escapists. Well, yeah. I want to escape hell. Don't you? Don't you tell people about Jesus because you don't want them to go to hell either? Oh, by the way, you have to believe that there is a hell. There are those who say they're Christians who say, well, you know, nowadays I don't know that there really is a hell. Everybody should go to heaven. Well, that certainly doesn't line up with what God has said. And God is love, God is mercy, God is grace, God is righteous, God is holy. God is unchanging. And by the way, so is his word. Unchanging. Now the fact is, we are exempted from God's wrath. Notice, we have man's wrath, we have Satan's wrath, we have the world's wrath, but we're exempted from God's wrath. Now that's a very important thing. Because listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 21, verse 36, and listen for that one word. Listen, watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape. All these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. He's not talking about God's wrath. He's talking about all the other things that we have to deal with until the coming of Christ. 
In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Did you notice that's past tense? He has delivered us from the wrath to come. He's delivered us from the wrath that is coming upon this earth, the wrath that is coming upon the world, the wrath that is coming upon all those who have rejected the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. For God has not appointed us to wrath. We're not appointed to that wrath of God. We have been told that we're going to go through, God, uh, to, through man's wrath and through Satan's wrath and to the world's wrath, but not God's wrath. And even in Romans chapter 5 verse 9, Paul says, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Saved from wrath. Oh, and don't forget what uh, Jesus said to the, to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. The, the message that was given to the church, uh, it was a church in Asia Minor in, in the city of Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, by the way. And it is the church that is supposed to represent the, the, the last day true church of all, made up of all believers in the last days. And this is what he says to that church. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them or test them that dwell upon the earth. I will keep you from that hour. And what kind of hour would that be? Revelation 6.17 says, For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Who shall be able to stand? One of the main reasons that we can trust the pre-tribulation rapture of the church has to do with the fact that the tribulation period concerns the nation of Israel. You see, much of the problem that we have with people who are trying to devise their own uh, eschatology, which is, by the way, the study of end time or last days events in the scriptures. That is primarily the, the doctrine, if you will, of eschatology <laughs> from that standpoint of study. But those who have tried to devise their own timetables and their own references to why they believe that it's not, there, there's no pre-tribulation rapture has to do with the fact that they do not consider Israel to be important in prophecy. And may I say to you, if you don't consider Israel important in prophecy, then you don't have prophecy. Because Israel is the key to all prophecy. From the very beginning, throughout all of the scriptures, and even to the very end. Where is Jesus going to come when he comes back to this earth with his church? He's not going to go to Rome. He's not going to go to Washington. He's not going to go to uh, uh, any, any, other, any other city. He is going to Jerusalem. That's what the Bible tells us. And he's coming back to restore and deliver his people, Israel. Jeremiah 30, verses 7 through 9, makes it really clear. Alas, here's the prophecy. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. What day? The day of the Lord. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob. Do you remember Jacob had his name changed by God to what? Israel. 
but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck and will burst thy bonds and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. That's Israel. David their king, by the way, they'll come to find out is actually the Messiah of Israel, Jesus, Yeshua, whom I will raise up unto them. Now, this comes from uh, a, a prophecy, at least another prophecy that we need to understand is Daniel, Daniel 9 verse 24 where it says 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. All we have to do is stop there and say, hey, he's speaking to Daniel. Whose people are Daniel's people? Israel. And what then would be the holy city for Daniel? Jerusalem. That's, that's clear, simple. Seventy weeks are determined, that is, seventy weeks of years, 490 years are determined upon Israel and Jerusalem to finish the transgression. They're still, they still have seven years, ooh, seven years of judgment upon them to finish their chastisement, to finish their punishment. Seven years and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy to anoint the most holy. All of that is about Israel, not the church. Throughout Scripture, the Lord uses Israel and the church on a mutually exclusive basis. Essentially, in the Scriptures, there are two programs. There is one program for Israel and one program for the church. They're not the same. This is what confounds those who believe in replacement theology. That the church today, because the church is, you know, is blessed by God, and Israel has been rejected to a certain extent, you know, to them it's completely, they say, well, Israel no longer matters, so now the church receives all the blessings of Israel. Well, listen, if we're going to receive the blessings, we might as well receive the cursings too. Because that's what God gave to Israel. Blessings and cursings. But they don't want to have the cursings. They just want the blessings. That theology is not of the Lord. Because they're still in Israel. And those of us that have been there know it. And have seen it. And realize we are coming close. To the scriptures being fulfilled in the Middle East, especially in Israel. There's no biblical, by, by the way, secondly, there's no biblical reference to the church on the earth during the time period that we know as the tribulation period. No biblical reference to the church. In Revelation chapters 4 through 19, the church is missing. The church is missing. And yet the word for church, ecclesia, is used 19 times in Revelation chapters 1 through 3. 19 times the word church is used. In chapters 4 through 19, the word ecclesia is found zero times. Zero times. Not there. There's one reference to the churches at the end in chapter 22. One reference to say, Make sure that the church gets all of this. But that's the only time it's used after chapter 3. 
Why is this teaching of prophecy so important? I'd like to have you turn to Genesis 18. And as you're turning to Genesis 18, we're almost done here. And we're going to come to the table of communion here in just a moment. But <laughs> as you're turning to Genesis, by the way, there's a, there's a real great picture of the rapture of the church. We're not going to that one, but it's, it's found in the person of Enoch. Enoch, who lived on this earth, walked with God. And it tells us he walked with God and was not because God took him. It becomes a picture of the rapture of the church, that God just brought him up into his, into his presence. Then, of course, there's the ark, Noah's ark, the salvation of, of eight people while the world is destroyed in the flood. And many others, but I want, I want you to bear with me. I want to do this as fast as we can so we can come to the table of communion. Verse 16. This sets it up for us to see where Abraham is when we talk about this man. The men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom. What men? These were the angels that came into Abraham's camp. And Abraham, in his hospitality, took care of them. But they had a mission, and their mission was in Sodom. And notice it says, And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Now listen to this, the Lord said, He's speaking to himself, the Lord. I, I really like that, because sometimes I speak to myself, I don't know why, but catch myself. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham the, that thing which I do? Now think about what he's saying. Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring, up, bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Now, what the Lord was referring to uh, was the judgment about to come on Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, shall I, listen, shall I hide from Abraham the thing, that thing which I do? Obviously not. The Lord knew that Abraham would be faithful to teach his children and his household about things that were to come. Because what does God give Abraham to command and to teach? This goes all the way back to Genesis 15 and 17. By the way, not 16, 15 and 17. Because there, he, God, gives Abraham the promise of an heir and that he would be the father of many nations. Now, now follow along with me. In chapters 15 and 17, he says, you're going to be a father of many nations because you're going to bear a son. And in 17... Sarah is reminded that she's going to be the one to bring him into this world, which made Abraham laugh because Sarah was really old. But you see, nothing is impossible with God. So there's the father and a son is promised. Got it? And it would be through Sarah again at, a, at an old age. But the second lesson then is to command and to teach uh, would be the promise of a lamb, 
a lamb. Now, what do, we mean, what do we mean by that? Well, you have to go to Genesis 22. Because in Genesis chapter 22, that is when Abraham takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah. And of course, they, they gather all this wood. And, and Isaac has to bear that wood and carry it up, up to this place where God had commanded Abraham to take his son to sacrifice him unto the Lord. Now, Isaac is looking around and he says, you know, Lord, uh, uh, you know, Dad, uh, Father, uh, Abba, uh, there, there's, there, there's no lamb. Should I go back and get one? And Abraham said, no, son, God will provide himself a lamb. The promises of, a, of the son being the sacrifice. Thirdly, in Genesis 24, Abraham sends his nameless eldest servant. Don't know his name. But it's his eldest servant to travel to the land of his kindred, Ur of the Chaldees, to take a wife for Isaac, his son. In a word, the son is not sent. The son does not go. He sends his servant, who is a type of the Holy Spirit, sends his servant. And under a certain type of scrutiny and testing, he finds Rebecca. And the servant is to bring Rebecca to the son. In a word, the bride was going to where the son is. You see the picture? The bride is going to the son, to the bridegroom. Here is the gospel and the prophecy of the rapture of the church. An illusion. but nonetheless one that is very clear, pointing to a time when the dead in Christ shall rise and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together and we'll meet the Lord because we'll be taken to him in the air and so shall we ever be with him. And he does this through Abraham. Interesting that Jesus himself would say something very similar. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Or I have made known unto you. But then look at John 16, verse 13. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He will show you things to come. Folks, the reason why the church is in the condition that it's in today is because much of it has rejected the things to come. 
because they've rejected the word of God. They're putting it aside for fables and, and, and you know, to please man and not to please God. But God said of Abraham, shall I not show him? He's going to be faithful to command and to teach. Folks, we need to be faithful to teach the word of God about Jesus coming and about what's going to happen in the last days. Prophecy is important. And you'll notice we got a good picture. We got a good picture. The bride will come to the sun. And Abraham believed God. James 2, 23 tells us. The scripture was fulfilled which saith Abraham believed God. It was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. My question to you is where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Folks, we have one destination. Let's get ready for that. It's going to come whether by death or by rapture. But let's be ready for it. And comfort one another with these words.